Hello, and welcome to the PBPA podcast. I'm your host, Sarisha Gunta. Today, our guests will be answering questions about waivers and releases of liability. You've signed them many times for everything from walking through a haunted house to sending your child on a school field trip. You know what they are, but when does your nonprofit need to have them signed? And what do you need to do to make sure that they are enforceable? Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to tell you, our audience, a bit about the Pro Bono Partnership of Atlanta. PBPA strengthens our community by engaging volunteer attorneys to provide nonprofits with free business legal services. For more information on who is eligible to be a client or to apply for consideration, visit our website at pbpatl.org. Our website also has tons of resources, including articles and webcasts specific to Georgia nonprofits and their business legal concerns. Please keep in mind that this podcast is general information. It's not specific legal counsel. Contact your attorney for guidance on your specific questions. And now to talk to us a little bit about waivers, we have Larry Kunin joining us from the law firm of Morris, Manning and Martin. Larry is a partner at his firm and a dedicated PBPA volunteer. Thanks for be being here, Larry. Pleasure. So generally speaking, what is the purpose of a re release and waiver of liability? There are a couple purposes, and we're talking about uh, releases and waivers generally at first. Um, they operate for lack of a better way to say it, a deterrent. Uh, in other words, if somebody has signed a waiver or a release related to an activity that they may engage in, whether it's recreational, workplace, volunteer, it becomes a deterrent for them to file a lawsuit or make a claim should something happen on the premises. Um, and it really, it, it's somewhat of a misnomer. It's not truly a release, because a release is a release of some kind of claim that has arisen and when we talk about these kinds of waivers and releases, we're talking about something signed in advance. Um, and the same thing with the word waiver. It's a recognition that the person is about to engage in some type of activity that may have some kind of risk. So really what it is, is it's a document that supports a finding that the person assumed the risk of what they're going to engage in. Um, and I'll just give a, a pretty raw example. Um, people with children, uh, may know that every now and then before a field trip, they're asked to sign some type of waiver or release. And it may be that the class is going to go on a walk. And on a walking trail, there are inherent dangers, such as slipping on a rock and falling and, uh, you know, hurting a knee or something along those lines that have nothing to do with the conduct, negligent, intentional or otherwise, of the people who put on the activity. And so this would be a recognition that I am about to engage in an activity that may have some risk associated with it. Um, so the purpose is to make sure the person understands that they are entering a situation where there could be some risk and through no fault of the sponsor, there could be some kind of incident that occurs that may otherwise cause liability. Okay, so it's a deterrent and it's sort of a form of notice. And now in the age of COVID, Larry, if a nonprofit already has a waiver, do they need another one for COVID? As a general matter, no. I would put this in the belt and suspenders category that because of COVID, 
um, and you already have a waiver in place, it may not hurt to put in an additional waiver or amend the waiver because of COVID. Um, but as I said, that's really a belt and suspenders because you're probably covered anyway. Even though the waiver doesn't call out COVID, there are other laws and protections that protect people against COVID-related claims. I'm going to talk about a couple of them. Um, the main one has to do with a new Georgia law. If I have a premises that I'm going to have either employees or visitors come on the premises, and I know that I've got somebody with 104 fever who's got all the symptoms who tested positive on my premises, and I don't bar them from the premises and I allow other people to come on, I probably acted with some level of gross recklessness at a minimum. Um, but barring that, uh, it, it's almost impossible to control, is COVID coming in my premises, not coming in my premises? And under that statute, all you have to do is one of two different things. Uh, one is put a sign up, and it says in the statute what the sign must say. has to be a minimum of uh, 10-point aerial or similar font so that people can actually see it as they approach your premises. And, you, and uh, without quoting the whole thing, um, you have to cite that statute that I gave. And it then says under Georgia law, there is no liability for injury or death of an individual entering these premises if such injury or death results from the inherent risks of contracting COVID-19, you're assuming the risk of entering these premises. So that's similar to what we talked about waivers and, and releases a liability. It's really an assumption of risk. So now in Georgia, if you run a business um, or it, it could be a nonprofit, uh, it could be a volunteer center, if you have one of these signs in front of your premises, you are protected from liability as long as you did not act um, you know, willful, wanton, intentional, which, by the way, would override any waiver or release anyway, whether or not it says COVID. Uh, a release and waiver is not going to release your obligation to still act with care. Um, so, for example, I couldn't go on that hike I talked about and then throw some kid off the you know, edge and see how far he would slide down. That's, that's still an intentional conduct, and the waiver and release is not going to apply to that. Um, or if you see a hazard on the trail and you don't do anything about it, even though you see the hazard, so I, I personally would say if you've already got people signing waivers, uh, it probably is not necessary that they sign something new um, just for COVID. Um, I may think differently if maybe their job was to actually assist in the research of a vaccine. That might be a little different. Um, but if we're not talking about that situation, um, you probably do not need to have an additional waiver as long as you follow this part of, of Georgia law. Um, I did leave one part out of that statute uh, that it may also be important. Um, if you have an event, and, and volunteer entities also will have events, and, and there are restrictions under governor orders that they we're really not here to talk about today, but if you have an event where somebody enters the premises and they're given you know, one of these wristbands that people get to be in the event, um, or maybe some kind of ticket, if that language is also on the wristband or on the ticket, um, in a manner that it's readable, that also operates as the same thing as a sign that you put up in front of your door. Uh, so that's another way to protect yourself under the statute. Okay, great, interesting. And um, also on our website, the same language that you referred to, we have a template so that if any listeners wanted to just print out that template and stick it on their door, um, it's, it's on our website. Now, stepping back uh, to kind of more general, not just COVID-related concerns, why would a nonprofit want to require its 
nice volunteers who are being so giving of their time. The reason why it's still nice to have a volunteer sign something is, again, the deterrent against the claim, because most nonprofit organizations, by, by the word nonprofit, which already itself is a deterrent, because a lot of plaintiff's lawyers don't like going after um, what we would call empty pockets or, or pockets that don't have much money in them. Um, but you don't need a volunteer or nonprofit organization being the target of a lawsuit for a few reasons. Uh, nonprofits are, are more interested in earning funds so that they can then have their operate their activities, operate their volunteer activities, and it doesn't help to be paying that money over to a claimant. So again, there, there are certain, and this might be a, a fact determination, there could be a situation where, you know, the volunteer activity involves sorting of medical supplies that may have some sharp edges to them, uh, whether it's scalpels or other equipment, uh, maybe used equipment that, that are inherent with a certain level of risk that it may help to have a waiver. If nothing else, people will know what they're walking into, number one. And number two, it may make them more careful. Uh, because if somebody thinks they're walking into a situation that has no danger and they're shown a waiver, they may go, hmm, why am I signing a waiver? Maybe I need to be careful too. So it has that side benefit as, as well. Um, is it possible somebody will say, I don't want to sign one? Yes, it, it, it's possible. And the organization would have to make a determination as to whether or not they want to allow the person on the premises. Again, if the person's just going to um, you know, help sort some papers uh, other than a paper cut, uh, there really may not be much risk there, and the organization um, would be justified in taking on that risk. I haven't seen too many lawsuits over paper cuts. It, it's why I would consider waivers, again, depending on the kind of activity that you're involved in. Um, so things like uh, something where you might be assisting, you know, moving people, and you're lifting heavy furniture or equipment. It's just a good idea to have a waiver because it's a reminder of everybody, which you might be getting yourself into. And should you maybe have different types of waivers for different types of individuals, maybe one for volunteers and a different one for participants? Yeah, I, I would say yes, uh, for the reason you said, which is somebody who's actually in charge of the equipment, um, someone who's actually running the business has a different risk profile than somebody who is a volunteer. And you don't want to scare the volunteer away because of something that they're not actually going to get involved in. So I would consider it. I'm not going to say it's necessary. It, again, it depends on the distinction between uh, the people, you know, employees, the full-time volunteers, the managers, what they're going to do versus uh, someone who shows up for the day to volunteer. You don't want to discourage that if they're not actually going to be involved in the, the level of activity of the others. So I would consider it. I wouldn't say it's necessary depending on the activity. We often have clients who have uh, volunteers who are high school students. Um, is it okay if a high school volunteer signs um, the waiver on their own behalf or do their parents have to sign it? Uh, parents have to sign. Um, minors, which in Georgia is under the age of 18, do not have the ability to legally bind themselves to a document. Uh, and so a parent would have to sign in order to make the document effective. Um, but the bottom line is, if you're a minor um, and, a, and a waiver is required, the parent needs to sign the waiver. Um, I could tell you the experience that I had once that did involve sorting of medical supplies. Um, I brought my then minor son with me to expose him to volunteer work. 
Um, and I signed two copies of the waiver, one for myself and, and one on his behalf. And what should a nonprofit do if someone refuses to sign the waiver? Or what if they kind of mark through certain parts of the waiver before they sign it? A couple things. So there, there has to be a judgment call that's made, again, depending on what kind of activity are we involved in that requires or the reason why we want a waiver release or as uh, and, and if it's somebody who's really going to just, you know, sit at the front door and sign people in, you may not want to stand on the waiver if there's someone who is actually going to get involved in the handling of um, more dangerous equipment. Uh, then in that particular case, you, you may just tell the person, I need the waiver signed, you got to go your own way. And then, of course, another option is um, uh, to, to contact the pro bono partnership and see if you can get an analysis of it, maybe even ahead of time, uh, because usually you don't do these on the day of, but you're planning for some kind of event or you have some kind of schedule and you already know what you're going to assign people to. And now, Larry, this next question is one that always came up pre-COVID, but it's an even bigger concern now. For a waiver, does a hard copy of the waiver need to be signed? Or can a nonprofit collect signatures digitally? Um, and it's a great question because everybody has moved to electronic um, in just about every facet of business these days. Um, the bottom line is you do not need a hard ink signature on a waiver. Um, an electronic signature is generally good enough. You could do it by scan. You can do it by insertion of um, your name. Like I've got a little scan of my signature that I could put onto a letter. The purpose of a live signature historically is that it's easier to authenticate that that's actually the person who signed the document. So this is everyone's fear when the document signed is one day I need to prove that the person signed the document and they go, that's not my signature. Well, an actual ink signature can be uh, validated by ink experts. Um, if they're notarized, well, then the notary has already validated the signature. Um, there are now electronic programs out there. DocuSign is the biggest one where you get a unique username and password and you affix an electronic signature. And some of us may have seen this where it looks like a script signature and a bracket around it and then like a serial number under it. Now, can somebody steal your username and password? Yeah, that's possible, but somebody could also forge my signature as well. You can go to a notary with, with, with a fake ID. Um, so, you know, you're never 100% covered, but those are the ways that you make sure the signature is perfectly fine. Um, but having said that, when we're talking here in a voluntary uh, organization, the lengths that someone would go through to fake a signature is probably not a very big risk, unlike if you were in the business of transacting money internationally, uh, as in a bank, you know, there's a little more interest in that. Um, so. Uh, personally, I would feel comfortable with, and I've done it, signing documents electronically and then submit them electronically. And again, there are different ways that can do that. If you've got a touch screen uh, or an iPad or even on your iPhone, you know, you could just do it with your finger. Bottom line, electronic signatures are probably okay for 99.9% .9 of what we do. So I'd be happy with electronic signatures. Okay. That's good to know. And how long does should a nonprofit hold on to the waiver? And I'm going to give you the technical answer and the safe answer. 
the statute of limitations in Georgia for a personal injury of which almost every uh, claim that we're talking about here is probably a personal injury, whether it's catching COVID, um, which, by the way, is going to be an extraordinarily high standard in the first place to prove you actually got it at a particular location. Um, but whether it's COVID, whether it's a piece of machinery falling on you, uh, whether it's a, a nail, uh, you know, accidentally going through your foot or something like that, um, those are all personal injuries. And the statute of limitations is two years. So two years from whenever the activity ceased, not when the waiver was signed, because the waiver could be signed for something you're going to do for six months. When the activity ceases at six months, um, technically, statute of limitations is two years. However, here's what I think is the safe answer. Um, in Georgia, liability under a written contract is six years. And even though the claim here technically wouldn't be a breach of contract claim, there is a contract that's signed that addresses the situation, addresses the risk. And I would say the safe answer is six years from the end of the activity, just in case some clever plaintiff's lawyer somehow finds that this is actually a uh, breach of contract claim. Maybe somebody um, you know, slipped into a waiver, uh, you, know, you waive all liability, you assume risk, um, and if something happens, we're going to do why? Well, it's that if something happens, I'm going to do why that now makes it a contract promise that I'm going to do something. So, um, technical answer, two years, safe answer, six years. And one last question I have is how long is the waiver good for if, um, our volunteer signs it today and they're still volunteering with us five years from now. Um, and then at that point they have an injury. Will our waiver still cover us? Uh, the answer is likely yes. And I say likely because here's exceptions. Um, the activity itself could change. Uh, and if the activity changes, the waiver may need to change along with it. Remember, we talked about, you know, waivers might be different for people who just greet people at the door versus people who work with heavy equipment. Um, and the other is, are we talking about a consistent activity? So is it somebody who volunteers for a month and then they don't do anything for, you know, two, three years and then they come back two, three years later? I would think you'd want to get another waiver because of the break in the action. It's not an ongoing activity. Okay. Um, great, Larry. This was all fantastic information. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in for this podcast. And just a reminder that this podcast is general information. If you have specific questions about your organization, please reach out to your attorney. Thank you. Thank you.